Grey Man, Fizz. What's up? Greg Day. How the hell are you? Yeah, I'm good. <laughs> is, that, is that the worst answer possible? Uh, yeah, no, it's 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 pretty shit. I'm well. Having a <laughs> subtle variation. Hey, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks. It's been, it's been a few years. It's been a little while. It's good to have you back. It's good to be here. You know, the last time out here, we had a little um, Batman icon. We do. Did you bring one? No. <laughs> I apologize. <laughs> Absolutely no segue from that. Nothing's happened in, since we did the last podcast episode. The world's going well. Um, <laughs> People in government appear to be handling things reasonably well. The, I think there's not much violence and the climate's <laughs> in, in good shape. If you so could summarise the last four years in a nutshell, would it be this? Emotional, damn it! Yeah. It's one of his favourite uh, Instagram reels, little bits of content, so, you know, it might come out. Emotion! Sorry. I can't help myself. But how you been? What's been happening? Fill me in. Tell me everything. Don't tell me everything, but tell me all the good stuff. Well, n- narrow it down. Narrow it down. There's a lot of, a lot right, of, so a lot of categories of the world. <coughs> there are. It? All right. So here's how I want to start. We haven't done this for a while. There are the Virtus family, you know, just because of the world's, the world spins, mm. people move on, people come in. The Virtus family looks a lot different now to what it might have yeah. 2017 when we first did this. Yeah, I still haven't met a large number of the new people and lots of reasons behind that. I'm not always down on the floor and they haven't met me and so So what should they know about the Fizz? Because we'll get we'll get into a little bit of a cliff notes of your history and what you've done and where you've been and things like that. Today I want it to be a little bit more of a chat than that, but I think that's an important way for us to get started for you to get to know or for the, everyone to get to know you. First of all. What should they know? What are cliff notes? Uh, Why is it called a cliff note? I actually don't know. Do you know? You is would it, know. Is it possible that you have used the wrong phrase? No, nah, cliff notes are a thing. Uh, epi- you, you, episode you, notes? Uh, no, nah, cliff notes is like the breakdown. It's I don't know. I actually don't know the technical definition, but I'll sort that out. If you could uh, give us a summary of who the fizz is and what the fizz has done while I search cliff notes. I am a purveyor of possibility. <laughs> Go on. Does that make sense to you? It does. So the word purveyor is not something that I knew about until I watched Kath and Kim. Kath and Kim, an Australian iconic com- comedy. It, it's iconic and it's obviously very intellectual because you learn <laughs> words such as well, purveyor. Well, Glenn Robbins' character used to talk about, someone asked him, are you a butcher? And he said, no, I'm a purveyor of fine meats. And I looked it up and a purveyor is somebody who supplies, delivers sells and so being a purveyor of possibility means that you sell deliver produce manufacture whatever craft possibility for other people and in my professional training that's in clinical care and in my post-professional training it's in clinical coaching training exercise advanced performance uh development of clinicians in anyway so i teach clinicians and I treat people and I coach people to move better and the transition from all of those things is so they go back to doing what they want to do so what you're really selling people on is you know it's possible that you could be different to what you are currently right now and usually that's better or faster or stronger or that's what we're here for or leaner or fatter if you want to be or <laughs> 
or uh, and sometimes happier and sometimes just even more calm and sometimes just breathing better because breathing better makes a world of difference and sometimes it's not feeling sore or feeling more supple and so there is always a possibility that things could be different and so we sell the idea of possibility and we sell the idea that a person could be possibly better than what they currently are and better is whatever they want to tell us about you know what's better to them is different to every single person and then you've got to figure out where you play a part in delivering that to them and often it's what we directly do to them often it's how we create a space for them to step into and then be in that space and how they be is usually different to how they were before they stepped into that space so i'm a purveyor of possibility that's a phenomenal answer oh it's okay a little sidebar for a second sidebar cliff notes a little cliff note about a sidebar are a series of pamphlets with summaries and basic analysis of works of literature intended as study aids study aids so it's like a summary yeah so, pamphlets. Are you putting together a, list of, a series of pamphlets about cliff notes? I might there? make a Greg cliff note. Yeah. Uh, comment below if send you it, want cl- Greg cliff notes. Just send it to my link. Pur- <laughs> yeah, I can do that. Purveyor yeah. of possibility. So, and I love that. I love that summary because it's really easy for us to put ourselves and each other in a little box and say, I coach or I treat people or I, you know, I count numbers or I do X, Y, and Z. But Purveyor of possibility gives you that infinite range of possibility. Possibility to both e-juice, like that, yeah, a juice to bring out, and and worth clarifying to people that the word e-juice comes from <laughs> Latin educare, which means to bring out, and it's the root word for education. And in a lot of education circumstances, what you end up doing is having a teacher or instructor who's putting information or technical skills into, and we would call that instruction. And there are times where that's absolutely necessary. And other times where you have to create a circumstance where something comes out of the person and that's educing. And if we could summarise your teaching philosophies, bastardise even in a sentence, it would be to adduce change. Yeah, and you've got to instruct sometimes because there are technical things that people are just not going to know until you instruct them in how to do it. You know, some people, sure. people are not going to know how to deadlift until you instruct them in how to do it. And then you create a circumstance where what comes out of them is an entirely stronger person. And so you instruct and you adduce. And it's the balance between those two. And sometimes you have to step away and let's see what comes out and then you can use performance bandwidth to guide that person and sometimes you've got to say, hey, you know what, that space I'm creating, it's just not coming out of you, let me instruct it. And we call that walking the dog. Let me, I need to walk the dog so that the dog feels what it looks like to walk. Yeah. So, and, okay, go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to, uh, I was going to break left a little and, and get a little bit of history as to how you became the purveyor of possibility that you are today. It's a good little bit of alliteration there. Couple of P's. Couple of P's. I'm good at alliterations. <laughs> Thanks, E. Oh, that's just the uh, pups in the background. Shout out. How? <clears throat> it ties directly into the fact that when an individual has come seeking assistance, they didn't know that there was other. They thought about things that were possible, and it's usually it's just, can I not have this pain? Okay, and when I was not able to do that for them, I would consider myself to be not as good a purveyor of possibility before I even used that phrase. Mm. 
as I should be or as I want to be. And that becomes a source of high stress for a professional person who's spent a lot of money and a lot of time putting yourself into the category of someone whose job it is to do that. And when you can't do it, you think, I'm missing something. Either I'm shit <laughs> or – and I could be and I probably am, but I want to be less shit so I can actually exchange value because someone's going to pay me to do this service. So what came from that is that I, had, I knew that there was mistakes happening and I had to reveal those mistakes in me because here's the thing. If you reveal the stakes – if I revealed the mistakes in me – I had an opportunity and a possibility. I became a purveyor of possibility for myself to change those things, to make less mistakes so that when somebody came to see me, I would be able to reveal in them the gatekeeper that's holding them back from achieving their possibility. And that led to me to move on so many times from where I was because I was not in a circumstance where... I was being able to reveal those mistakes about myself and I had to move on to somewhere where that would be revealed. And then I had to go and study systematic ways where I could reveal those mistakes in others. And then I had to tie back all of the shit that I learned <laughs> that wasn't systematically organized and say, oh, I think at some point in time I learned a technique or a strategy where if I was to tighten that up now and apply it, to the mistake I just revealed in this person, I now actually get to unlock that possibility. And so that was a long process of knowing how messed up I was in terms of a professional or personal whatever, um, recognising that as the first thing, that's the awareness, and then secondly thinking, I need to break free of the current circumstances so I can go and address that and that's going to be the balance of sometimes it's personal, sometimes it's professional. But you've got to – well, I had to. I didn't have to. I just chose to because I was – it was just this internal drive of this ain't good enough. And that took me all over the world and it learned, I learned systems that allowed me to reveal another piece. And, of course, all of those things have to fit together in a continuum so that I know when someone comes to see me they fit at this point in the continuum. And I know all of the steps afterwards and I know if I have to go backwards, I can take these steps backwards. So in a roundabout way, to get to a point of being a purveyor of possibility in others, I had to be a purveyor of possibility in myself. And to know how to do that, I had to observe mistakes in myself that weren't at the heart of things or the soul of things good. And I had to change those, which meant I had to go to places that, were a space for me to then figure that out. I had to be a purveyor of possibility for myself so I could do that for others. Is that something you were always inherently aware of, that no. need to no, because grow I, and become aware? May, may, if I'm saying these things <coughs> in an articulate manner, I probably had internal grumblings of, of knowing that something wasn't quite right and not, not knowing how to change it or what even was not right. And it took a long time to get to a point where I could articulate what it is and now I can say it. So it's not easy because you don't know what you don't know. And you don't, sure. you don't know the words that represent the deep feeling of discontent or the deep feeling of incompetence. If you don't know the words, you can't clarify it. And then 
um, not being able to clarify it clearly means that you go around in circles and you go searching for the next, maybe it's the next big thing or it's the next experience yeah. or it's the next whatever. And um, unfortunately, well, I, I reckon, you know, it took me a long time and part of my journey now is to say when people are thinking how do I be better or how do I find this possibility, it's like, you know, I can cut a lot of shortcuts. I can <laughs> yeah. find a lot of shortcuts for you. But you might also disregard those shortcuts, make your own mistakes and then come back and go, what were those shortcuts again? It is a fascinating part of the human experience that yeah. everyone, we, we think, like we're unique in our, own, in our own special snowflakey little way, but at the end of the day, everyone, every problem we've been through, someone else has been through it in some way, shape or form. Mm. But there's almost part of that experience has to be experiential it has to, we have to go through it ourselves so what what steps did you take was it purely just and you know this is something we'll probably talk about that one step one two step in front of where you are now that you need to uncover before you hit the third and the fourth and the fifth step what were the actions or experiences or things that you did either consciously or subconsciously that allowed you to not simply just go around in circles but spiral around and then Un uncover deeper layers of understanding. I think it's primordial and it's primitive. It's basically feeling. You f you feel something and you go move towards it, or you feel something else and you move away from it. That's primordial. That's bacterial. That's sensory input. I feel shit, therefore I need to do something <laughs> to feel less shit. <laughs> this feels amazing. Let's do more of that. And you can get. That's how addiction eventually spirals, mm. or that's how compulsion spirals or that's how avoidance spirals and and it clearly because no one can tell you how much is too much for you and how much is not enough for you so yep. everything starts with feeling how do you feel i feel fucking shit ass okay well we need to look at <laughs> what's going on that's part of that and figure out what we could cut out that makes you feel less of that so that's so while we could tell people shortcuts people have got to feel because the language the, this is a great quote from greg cook who said that the body doesn't learn through the language of words. It learns through the language of feeling. And so as a purveyor of possibility, you don't help somebody simply by your words. You help them by creating a circumstance where they feel. And Dr. Mm -hmm. Maya Angelou said it brilliantly. People don't remember what you say or do for them, but how you make them feel. And so the personal journeys that people go through is really about experiencing feeling. And then the great part about a community like Virtus is sharing those feelings with others so that you get to hear your own words because mm. that comes back at you. And other people may, if you let them and if you ask them and if you want them, be able to assist you to get more of that feeling or to, you know, support you when you're trying to figure out the stuff you want to get rid of that doesn't feel less of the bad stuff. So in terms of asking me how did I initiate that, it was all started with a feeling, hooked on a feeling. If we had a soundbite for that, that would have worked well just Well, there. good chuck. If you gave me a little bit of... Uh a little bit of time, I would have would have nailed it for I'm, you. I'm into space, time, and different dimensions. So let's fold a bit of space. Oh. <laughs> and how, we'll, how, how many we'll, dimensions are we going to explore we'll today? I've actually worked out. I think I understand six dimensions, and I reckon there's nine or more. I un I'm not quite. I think I understand seven, eight, nine, but I definitely understand the first six. But that's for another podcast. Yes, and we, let's talk. Let's quickly talk about the first three. Go on then. Height, width, depth. Mm -hmm. Okay, so three dimensions on an axis, and the fourth one is time. Mm -hmm. We won't go any further than that because it, it's I, I uh, so fourth one is time. I think I understand five and six, and I think I understand just for the seven, people playing seven, at home. Nine. What are five and six? No, 
No, next time? Next time. All right. So today's purely a 60-minute podcast, so we don't want to, uh, I guess, delve into other dimensions because we may lose track of space and time. Oh, so we did it. Mm, do you like that? Yeah, you slotted that in. He hasn't heard that before. He just saw that it was written down. So very good from you. Um, have some water, by the way. This is your weekly reminder to drink some water. It's clean. It's cold. And that's what I call high quality tool. Just making the world better one mouthful of water at a time, right? Yeah, one soundbite at a time. <laughs> We're here for the soundbites. Okay, so one thing that I love about the way you treat and a lot of other people kind of see it happening without maybe understanding the the depth behind it is the systemic systematic approach that you take to to your to your treatment and to your practice and to your effectively your life so i guess the question is around one what allowed enabled you to develop that and one was there a point in the of time in your life when you said, okay, I have accumulated all of these experiences and I've, uh, I've understood how things work individually. Now I need to build it into a system and or find a system that is already built around the things that I know. We've already mentioned how feeling was the first thing. And the next thing was connecting feeling to words because words allows you to reproduce the feeling. For sure. So I had to explore, um, Great use of um. <laughs> I had to explore people that were great orators. Mm. Who were capable of articulating the good stuff. There you are. Did it smell like potential? It smells like potential. Yeah. Carry on. If you, if you stumble across a great orator, they connect with you and they make you think. They create iceberg statements where they will make a statement that's quite brief like the volume of the tip of an iceberg relative mm -hmm. to the 90% that sits beneath the waterline. And they lead you to look beneath the waterline and explore the depth of something. So part one was feeling. Part two was coming across words that connected to deep, to go deep. And then once you go deep, which takes time and effort um, and energy, you eventually come back to above the waterline and then you look at that iceberg and you go, I know what that means now at a deeper level. So mm -hmm. part two was was connecting that with words and you, the only way you can do that is to is to explore, whether that's through books or videos and, and I didn't have – we didn't have a lot of the systems. I didn't have them in video form or book form and I had to – you know, luckily the internet opened up that world and I explored, went searching for um, – you know, started off with – can I see a 400-meter program? Because I was in an allocation where I'd previously run at state level or once at national level. And I wanted to then look at some templates of what looked like a good 400 program if I was going to apply that to myself now that I was in a different part of the world. And I stumbled across a couple of coaches who said, hey, you know what, before we do any of these programmings, we do a particular movement screen. And yep. it's called this. And I've gone, oh, that's interesting because I also had been doing some assessments with track athletes and – I'm interested to see what somebody else does. And what I saw was so much better than what I was doing. And that was connected to me by words and some visual. And then I thought, well, I think I need to learn what that is. And that took me in a direction of saying, oh, I see now more mistakes in myself and in other people that I didn't see before. And that's got to be a good thing because if I can see those mistakes, then maybe I could learn to do it less often. So that process was connecting with other people who had ideas and saying, well, that 
is better than the one I've got. Let's move in that direction. It's still primordial. It's still bacterial of an amoeba having a sensation and going, I'll go towards that direction or I'll go away from. And I guess that takes a lot of effort and time and, and even money because every time you move and you go and go somewhere else, it's like, you know, you uproot yourself and, and that's costly, but the benefit comes back in how you feel. Mm. Um, so the systematic approach was finding those elements and systems that were done by people at a in really tough circumstances and a lot of my life was spent visiting and uh, moving to and working in circumstances that were really tough athletically where to get a successful outcome in the environment that they were in was damn near just imp- not impossible because people were doing it so i was like well what are these people doing that's outstanding and i started writing down you know, they do these things and they talk about this vision and they talk about their mission statement and they talk about their principles and then they expand on them. And I thought, well, that's really cool. And, you know, if I could dive all day, there's another huge iceberg. So I wrote those things down and then I would stumble across an experience in my life in another really challenging athletic environment. And if I could just give specific examples, one is Australian military in the tropics and the other one is... British military in the snow of Germany. And a third one is elite professional sport in China. And a fourth one is then let's look at the, the peak sporting bodies in the United States of NBA and NFL and NHL. And do I know people that are having success there as coaches and influencing physical therapists and athletic trainers and chiropractors and osteopaths? And the answer was yes. And I think, well, what are they doing? to be able to get outstanding outcomes in a in probably the toughest competitive environment in the world from a sport point of view. And I think China and Russian sport would be even tougher. And I wrote theirs down. And at, there was a train ride in, from the east of China to the west of China, and I ended up sitting there for hours in a super fast train. And I had looked at all the notes that I'd written on a mind map, and I shuffled them around, and I put all the mission statements alongside each other. And then <coughs> beneath that was the visions or different phrases and they use different phrases for almost the same stuff and then their principles and i thought that's interesting they're really similar now none of these people have met each other and they're in different parts of the world in different organizations but they are all talking about the same thing and then i looked at some of the founding principles that said you've got to be healthy first and then you have to move pretty well and when you move pretty well on a healthy body you're a pretty good chance to actually express high performance and so those are three fundamental pillars and a lot of people were outstanding in one Mm. but maybe not three and i found out that one of those sections which is about moving well there's probably two breakdown components and some people were outstanding at one of those but not both of them and i thought that's interesting because if you do the barriers to doing successful things in the toughest athletic environments come down to only four things (laughs) and you and all these people across the world are all doing the same thing to a greater or lesser degree very few people are doing all four. Mm. And if you could do all four or know about them, then when somebody comes to you and says, hey, I need some help, when you do a good evaluation, you figure out that they actually need boosting in one of those four. And if you boost one, do not be surprised to see all the others lift. And I thought this is, this is magic that has been expressed in a moment, but it's highly built on the articulation of words that were given by people all around the world and that was based on them going through their own life where they felt a particular way to change 
and then they spoke about it and that reached me and then I took that and I observed what happened all these different athletic circumstances and saw my own insights and then when I came back I thought huh so when someone comes to see me it's only going to be in one of three categories that they got an issue and I got to figure out which one it is and once I've done that I had to use the tools that I've got to figure out exactly within that category where the breakthrough is and then I've got to be skilled enough to do it so there's a lot of responsibility there and now and the best thing is to say there are other people that do this better than me so let's handball now from here to there or I don't have that capability so let's refer that out to this person who does and at the end of the day what you're really doing is helping people and sure that's the true essence of pervading of possibilities you're helping people be better and it may not always be you that does it and to be perfectly honest a lot of the time i get the shits and i go <laughs> i'm tired yeah <laughs> I, I sh- someone else can do it at this point in my life not and i'm not saying that right now but yeah. at some points in your life you think i right now need to go back to purveying possibility of myself and that might mean i need to sacrifice the efforts and energies and times that i was allocating to purveying possibility in others and I think that awareness has been a, uh, well, maybe a lifesaver. Yeah. It's been a feeling saver because yep. it does, because again, it comes back to that feeling, doesn't it? How how important, and I guess I, for some context, I've. How did you not, say that? What did you say in that word then? For context. Right. You, not, not that you were always a yes man, but for, you know, the first couple of years I know you, I knew you, there were very few times when you would say no because I guess the capac- you had the capacity to be that purveyor of possibility for people. Over the last couple of years, you've become aware of your need to create boundaries and to fill your cup when you need to and to purvey possibilities in yourself. How important has that shift been? Obviously, it's been conscious in some way, shape or form, but what has allowed you to kind of put the needs of other people aside so that you can fill your own cup first? Uh, the answer is in the question. You don't fill your own cup. There's no cup to help others. But for a lot of, for a lot of people, and, you know, it's that hustle culture or that, uh, you know, I need to work or I need to earn, earn money or I need to do all these things. Mm. Um, different, different a lot of people get to the end, get to the, oh, my cup's empty, what the fuck am I going to do before that? It seems like you've done a... F- fairly well fairly decent job of identifying what you need and when you need it um yeah i think there's three parts to it one is if you're introverted or extroverted and maybe that's not the only two dichotomies on a continuous scale but great dichotomy thank you (laughs) if you're extroverted then uh, uh one way that i recently heard it was that you recharge by being around others so those that are emptying their cup can actually fill it up in the process of serving others. If you're on the introverted scale, you recharge by spending time alone. For sure. And so when you go through a troublesome period where your recharging is required more than it was at another time of your life, there's only one way to do that if you're introverted, which I am. And you can be a socially advanced, capable, competent, Mm. with capacity um, introvert who can express themselves extrovertedly. But at the heart of it, you need recharging by being alone. So when your recharging is required a bit more and you think, okay, well, the only way for me to do that is to step away from being around others as much as I was before. And so that's 
that's probably where you do it. The second part is, again, you have to experience for yourself how much you can empty your cup before you're going to fill it up. You can't be told that. And so who who knows how many hours and weeks and years you can go emptying your cup before you actually crash and burn. No one knows that because that's an individual process. And the third one is that there are times in your life where you just got to suck it up and be out and go, <laughs> yeah. it's time to hustle. Cause, yeah. Because there's lots of reasons I could explain, but this is the time to do it. I do have a choice. I choose to do the hardest way, the hustle. Yeah. And, and you know that at some point you're going to be able to take stock and, and, and refuel and, and sure. refill your cup and, yeah. and effectively go again. And there'll be no shortage of people who give you advice. <laughs> Free advice. Oh, yeah. Oh, and, yeah. And here's a great Stop experience. Stop giving un, uh, unasked for advice. Unsolicited. That's the word I was looking for. And if I've learned anything, it's that advice is like assholes. Everyone's got Everyone's, everyone's got, got one, one and they stink. <laughs> or they can't there's, there's some good advice out there and I think we're going to – I said they can't stink. We, they can't stink, yeah. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to get some today. Just uh, for those listening at home or watching at home, it's just started pissing down and I'm not sure how this is going to go – should be okay now with the mics here, but if you... The, the the noise of the outside rain is not really coming through the noise cancelling No, headphones. I don't think so. So I think we should be okay. But should be fine. if you know, just close your eyes and just think you're in, under a waterfall or something. Mm. Um, I've lost my train of thought. What were we talking about? We're talking about um, how do you know when you're emptying your cup and, and, yes. and your barri- um, barriers around saying no. Practices. When you feel as though your cup is getting empty, uh, mm. what are your actions... Practices. One is quiet time. You have you have to schedule it. Maybe you don't have to schedule it because, but but I schedule it. Um, improve sleep quality, and that sleep quality is not automatic. There are some things that you've got to do, and now they're just hab- habitual for me. So you can get the quiet time in the sleep, but you're getting a quiet time when you're awake is just as important. And then what you do with that quiet time is the personal choice and. On occasions, it's meditation. And on other occasions, it's a meditative practice of movement, which you, for me, currently, it's riding a bike. Um, prior to that, it would have been walking with a dog. Um, and clearly, all of these things have got different benefits just mm. rather than just quiet time. So there's quiet time and there's sleep, and then you've you've got to feel good. So really, a lot of the times, it's like, what, what can I do that makes me feel, better. feel good? So... As a result, my cup is charged. And sometimes you think, okay, I've done my recharging and I've done some meditation and uh, I've done some quiet reading and I've had a cup of tea and I've turned all music off and I've just listened to the rain. And now I have to go back to the thing that drove me into that quiet hole. And I think, no, 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 this is not just going to be a better time in my life because of the things that I do to recharge. It's also going to be a better time in my life if I actively stop doing the thing that forced me yep. to need to have the extra quiet time. And that's the whole concept of if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. And so you've got to find yep. ways when you're hustling, because that's needed, to also look for those moments of greatness. And usually when it's tough, you go, if you start with a smile and a question of how can I help you, you're not in work anymore. Mm. You're in a moment with a person where they will smile back usually because it's contagious. And the how can I help you is you opening the door for somebody to step into a space and then you think, I'm actually pretty good at this, so let me listen to what you're saying 
And as I'm listening, I know you're going to fit into one of these three categories and then we'll dive a little deeper. And hopefully you'll pay me at the end and I'll give you a little pat, pat, <laughs> on, pat on the bum. And, and, then, and then everyone wins. And then I've got to stop and say, do you know what? That doesn't feel like work. But am I drained from it? And a lot of people are up and about because of that. And sometimes I can think, I could do with not seeing anybody for the rest of today. Yeah. Because if I don't do that, remember that tomorrow I've got a bunch of stuff to do. I always look at that balance or that attempted balance as almost like a pendulum. You kind of, you're, the pendulum's forever swinging and you shift yeah. between the blast and caress or the, the yeah. work and the rest. The kick and, and the cuddle. Yeah. And, and ideally, you know, I guess when, when we're feeling fulfilled and, you know, life's humming and everything's going well, that pendulum doesn't swing too much. It kind of feels like they're both um, symbiotic or synonymous in, in themselves. But when things get hard and it might be a you know, global pandemic or a you know, something's happened external to your locus of control where you have to, shift, you have to allow that pendulum to, you know, to have a big swing. Um, just on the, on the sleep uh, habits and the the things that you've done to improve your sleep. You know, we I spoke about it with Tyler a few weeks ago. The the big rocks of hydration and good nutrition and stress management and then sleep being the you know, effectively the cornerstones of any worthwhile endeavor. What are the actionable things that you've done and that you would suggest? This is some good quality advice. Yeah. You, you would advise other people to do. If your body is too hot, you won't stay asleep. Your body, this is part of the circadian rhythm is when you, as the hormones of the overnight shift start to change into the day shift, that changes your body temperature and you start to get warmer. And when you get warmer, you start to wake up. So if you get warmer during the night, you'll wake up during the night. And when you wake up during the night, you you actually interrupt your slow wave sleep where your brainwave frequency is actually much slower. And when you interrupt that, you lose um, one particular thing, which is the, the lymphatic drainage of your brain, which is known as glymphatics. And so the glymphatics are really active when you're in slow wave sleep. When you jump out of slow wave sleep, the glymphatic activity reduces by about uh, 90%. So how that matters then, if I just quickly dive into the science, is that you end up with certain symptoms um, as a result of glymphatic dysfunction, which include neuroinflammation. Now, what neuroinflammation leads to is sensitivity to anything. Anything anything part of your body that's got a nerve in it can be hypersensitive, which means you can be pain, you can feel cold more, you can feel heat more often, you can be stressed by noise, you can hate the things that you look at and they can agitate you. So neuroinflammation is highly tied to how efficient your lymphatic system is and that's highly tied to how much slow-wave sleep you get. And that's highly related to the foods that you've eaten before you went to bed, the hydration status that you were in the previous 12 to 15 hours, the, um, the blue light that you've been exposed to before you shut your eyes because uh, that can affect the hormone of melatonin and that can reduce your slow-wave sleep again. And so it's about saying, I've got to figure out how I can not be exposed to blue light as much and sometimes that's blue light shielding glasses and sometimes it's switching your devices off and for me it's about wanting to watch something before I go to bed but not get the blue light from it so I plug my iPad into a projector which sits beside my bed 
and beams across to the wall opposite the foot of my bed. And the projector builds out to 100 inches of HD, which is cheap. So for a $1,000 projector versus a $6,000 or $7,000 television. Yeah. I can... Same size, no blue light. No blue light. It's big brain time. It's and, and I get to sleep and... So those are active things and I want to make sure that the room's not particularly hot. Optimal sleeping temperature? Well, the, it's Shona Helson, Dr. Shona Helson from the AIS, who's a professor and scientist of recovery and sleep nutrition, sleep, sleep hygiene. Uh, I recall her talking about how they set the air conditioning at the AIS for their athletes at 19 to 21 degrees. Now, in the wintertime, you don't even have to bother about that. Yeah. But um, also, if you have a lot of water before you go to bed, that's got to be processed through your liver, which means your liver becomes metabolic, and then that wakes you up between the hours of 1 and 3 a.m. Mm-hmm. because that's when your liver's going to peak. So if you're waking at 1 and 3 a.m., you've got to go back and think, am I drinking a lot of water after dinner? It uh, doesn't mean you can't sip on it. Mm. Am I having sugar or alcohol uh, around dinner time because my liver's got to break that down, and then I get metabolic, and then I get warm? wake up so the active things for me is don't be drinking um and that hasn't always been great because i love the taste of beer and i love a good scotch and also love a different wine but then i think it's no longer serving me to do that yeah and i what i find now is if i do have one i actually appreciate the taste better yeah i mean everything we do or don't do is a trade-off so it's being able to be an adult, <laughs> make your own decisions and go, hey, this is going to impact my sleep but i want to have my beer or yeah. and there were two other things that came about one was that the recommendations for slow wave sleep or deep sleep is about an hour and a half to an hour 50 or an hour 45. And you think, okay, what? and then I was using my Apple Watch, which was connected to my to an app called Auto Sleep, which was saying to me, Greg, you're getting 45 minutes of deep sleep or an hour 15 or 25 minutes. Yeah. And that was correlating with not feeling very well. And I thought, well, I need to change that and get it up towards an hour 30, an hour 45. So I've got to implement these things. But the last thing I'm going to drop off is a beer after dinner. Mm. <laughs> and until I dropped those things off, yeah, so that was it. it didn't it didn't get to an hour thirty. And this is the wonderful thing about living in twenty twenty two and having access to Technology. Apple Watches, Aura Rings, um, Whoop Bands, and and all of these technology that allows us to measure, you know, the X's and O's of sleep training, sure. nutrition, etc. So, yeah, you know, if you've got the tools, utilize them. Yeah. And learn to understand what these things are telling you. There was another thing as well, which comes back to the. Um, heart rate variability. There's over twenty, apparently over twenty thousand studies in the PubMed library that relate heart rate variability to health. And what a heart rate variability for those that don't know is, let's say you and I are both sitting here because we're chatting and we're up and about, and the dogs are barking. Get around them. Let's say we're on about seventy beats per minute. Let's mm-hmm. call it sixty because it means one beat per second. If I'm beating at a very very regular state, such as beat, 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 beat. That would say, we would say that there's low variation. There's almost no variation between the beats. If you're 60 beats per minute and you're beating all along at beat, 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 Mm. beat, beat, then you've got a high variation. Now, both of us are still getting 60 beats per minute. Well, the research is pretty clear that says if you have high variation like yours, your heart is in a particularly healthy state and your sympathetic nervous system is currently suppressed and your parasympathetic system which is related to being recovered and 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 regeneration is the dominant state so for as long as i've had this apple watch perhaps the past year my heart rate variability has been well below the lowest minimum standard and i look at it and i think it's interesting 
and I put in place practices that were about flipping me out of a stressed state. Things like meditation, regular walking, which can be meditative, mm. um, hydration better, nutrition better, um, and gradually fi- figuring out that I wasn't doing enough cardiovascular exercise. Low steady state walking was not enough. Yep. And the beer or wine or whiskey that I was drinking, I'm not, you know, sometimes it was like I feel relaxed if I've got that. And surely that would be parasympathetic. And I thought, well, maybe I'm wrong about that. Yep. So why don't we figure this out? And then it's um, it's taken a significant training block of cycling at various intensities and durations as I prepare for a five-hour mountainous ride to get to the point where my heart rate variability is starting to elevate now into above the dangerous state. And I've had ECGs and my resting heart rate overnight gets down to 50 and below and that's an indication that I've got a pretty good cardiovascular system Mm -hmm. and my ECGs are fine and yet the heart rate variability has been low and so that's another piece of tech in addition to the the sleep wave, the slow wave, deep sleep that said how I perceive of how well I am is not quite matching up to what the data is saying. So I tracked it using a different form of data which uses the camera from the iPhone and it records the pulse via the light that penetrates the skin Mm. and it gave me the same data and I said it's pretty clear there's something still sympathetic in my heart and I should ignore that at my own risk or and I don't necessarily think it's related to occlusion of blood vessels Um, you know that would indicate that you're at risk of getting heart damage but you know a significant life event could mean that you know you have a broken heart and you go quite literally i still may be suffering the sympathetic effects of of that for sure so then you think all right well just chip away at at what the things are that are supposed to change that and that means well planned out exercise progressive hydration good sleep quality moderation on all sorts of things that go into your body um, and be aware of the things that detract from your mental health and physical health and keep those at bay when necessary and embrace them because at times because they help you with coping skills. So it has been an, it's been a process of ignoring and then being <laughs> aware of and then making subtle adjustments and not paying any attention to the changes and then figuring out that maybe those changes are still there to be had and dialing in and just in the last couple of days the last couple of weeks that heart rate variability has just jumped up to above those minimum unsafe levels and i guess that's a deliberate outcome of doing things somewhat scientifically you know Mm. with a case study of n equals one yeah which is you know brilliant for own self-awareness but then you have that experience that you can then pass on that experiential learning too all the good people at home listening to the podcast. So, and when when we think about the things that form staples in the training programs we do here, it's breathe well and and drink lots of water, and move in three dimensions and challenge yourself and get around good people. And I see a lot of the clients that come in and they are missing all of those elements. And it usually starts with, "Hey, we need to improve your lymphatic system," which means we mm. have to talk about how your sleep's going to be better, and because the lymphatic system is causing you to be in pain in ways that you shouldn't be. 
So we're going to reteach you how to breathe better. By the way, your hydration is really low. And for those people that are thinking, how much hydration is normal? The answer to that is if you went into a hospital today because you were in a coma and someone took you into a hospital because you can't, <laughs> I mean, you can't sleep coma or walk coma. <laughs> walk coma, active but if, coma. Yeah. But if I was in hospital today and I was in unconscious, the nurses would put a needle in my arm, they would connect that to a tube which would go to a bag and we call that a drip. And that bag would be a 1,000 milliliters of uh, saline solution. And at about 12 hours, they would set it so that it would drip away into my body and about 12 hours later, there'd be a litre have gone into my body. They'd change the bag. So in a full 24-hour period, two litres have gone into me and I'm laying physically still with no physical activities. So if you're a person who's drinking two litres of water and you're not in a coma laying perfectly still, there's no way that you've got anywhere near enough hydration in your body. Two litres without any physical activity, just keeping you barely alive. And yep. so a lot of people say, I drink heaps of water. What, how much would you <laughs> yeah. actually say? Oh, at least a litre. Oh, you know, 600 mils to a litre of water a day. Yeah. And so their possibility is being inhibited by a very, very pure element. They're just not healthy at the most fundamental level. What's the first thing you do? we do when we're born? And if we Cry? don't do it, yeah, we'll breathe. <laughs> yeah, breathe. If you don't do it, yeah. the doctor smacks you. What's yeah. the last thing you do before you die? You stop breathing. <laughs> yeah. So breathing is that core fundamental. Mm. And so the next thing after that that we need as a human being is some kind of fluid nutrition. Mm. And after that, it becomes a solid nutrition. So at the fundamental level, you've got to uh, breathe, uh, have some hydration, sleep. Food could come after that. You know, you can get hydration, nutrition. And so when a lot of people are in pain or not performing, and if you stop and say, talk to me about your sleep, your hydration, how's your nutrition, and your performance as a person who wants to physically move might actually be secondary and tertiary and quaternary yep. to, to those. And, and it's fascinating, like probably not all, not that surprising, how many people do struggle with those three, four basic basic yeah. things. Yeah. Um, you know, because how good's coffee? Coffee's the best. And coffee becomes a substitute for oh. simple water. Mm. How good's getting up early at for a four thirty training session because I've got to get the train from where <laughs> I live. <laughs> got to do seventeen so it's other an hours things, commuting because yeah. they want me in at seven thirty because the office hours now is extended mm. by twelve hour shifts and I've got to go and do sport because everyone says that's pretty good. And you think, well, I've lost my sleep. I'm not drinking water because I'm tired. Yeah, I'm drinking caffeine, caffeine, which is great, but I'm dehydrated, which makes me more tired. And it spirals. And one of the easiest ways to clean all that stuff up isn't necessarily to have to add water or have to add sleep. It's to remove the things yeah. that are remove the negatives impacting your capacity to to you know stay hydrated. Rather than adding more well. to your life, sometimes it's about removing the things that are not making you happy and healthy. Simplicity, but is a beautiful thing. But saying this to anyone is not me or you giving advice to the world. It's saying in our experience, mm. and this is this. And you might find that if you explored the world, that a lot of people are saying the same things because that's their journey. Mm. And you'll ignore all those things and still have your vices and yeah. we're not going to judge you for it because at times you will then get to your own experience based on feeling and you'll go, oh, I think I heard that once on a podcast. Yeah. For me, it's just cultivating an awareness to how we're feeling and what that feeling is enabling us to do and who it's enabling us to be. Yep. Like the first thing... So we sit like first thing we do in our process is we sit down for a chat and we go through lifestyle and we go through goals and go through where they're at and um and but usually the first thing we do down the gym floor is just some breath work 
lay on your yeah, lay on your belly and breathe. I mean, you make the joke of you're going to be great at this because you've been breathing your whole life, but the fact of the matter is that most people have disrupted breathing in one way, shape, or form. Mm. Um, and if we can improve breath work, improve your capacity to breathe, which is obviously going to affect things like resting heart rate and heart rate variability, then you kind of take away one of the barriers to moving well. Um, and you spoke about before about health function performance. Health comes first, which enables function, which then enables performance. Mm-hmm. And if you were to summarise the majority of people, athletes or regular humans that you see, what would be the main two or three uh, roadblocks that they've got in front of their capacity to perform? And it doesn't necessarily have to be on the sporting field, but... It's cobwebs to their bookshelf. Oh, great use of cobwebs. And I'm going to refer back to Dr. Greg Rose, a colleague of mine from San Diego. You do shout-outs in a beautiful way, by the way. Thank you. <laughs> he won't be listening. <laughs> we'll send it, yeah. send it across to him. He tells a story about, you know, everything you're trying to learn is really is well told if you can tell a story. So you and I and every other human being were born and God or the universe gave us a empty bookshelf in our brain. And the what's going to go on the bookshelf is a book that tells us how to do stuff. And the very first book that goes on that bookshelf is the book that tells you how to breathe. And if it doesn't appear instantly on the bookshelf, the doctor smacks you on the bum and all of a sudden there's this book on the bookshelf that says, hey, little baby, this is how you breathe. So that's pretty cool because what happens then is then you learn to make noise and that's the second book. And then you learn to um, flail your arms in an uncontrolled fashion. And that's the third book. What are the three things you do when you get drunk? You breathe, <laughs> you flail your arms, and you make uncontrollable crazy noises. You end up doing primitive shit. Yep. And then, you know, you vomit, <laughs> you poo, and you sleep. It's like baby stuff. In that order, ideally. Anyway, the general gist is that it, in sequences, as you develop as a human being, you then learn how to do different things like reach for food, suckle, swallow, poo, roll over, crawl, pull yep. yourself up to a table you know, sort of cruise along the furniture until you wide stance walk and then you refine it and then you waddle and jump and run and fall down and climb back up again and you you start filling this bookshelf with books about how to do certain stuff and then mm. you occasionally will combine them and that forms a new book. Now, when somebody scares the shit out of you or you become nervous or you see yourself in the mirror and you remember that social media tells you that you have to have a flat stomach, or you hear this, you watch a movie where somebody says, pull your stomach in and puff your chest out because it's a military movie and you're standing on parade. Mm. And you see that as something that is socially normal. So you change the way that you breathe and instead of breathing the way that nature taught you to do so, you breathe by pulling your guts in and puffing your chest out. Now you just wrote a new program and you just put that on the bookshelf. So a lot of people then go through their life going to the bookshelf to do different things and they never go back to the original program about how to breathe and it gets covered with cobwebs. Yeah. And so what we do here at Virtus is we'd say, let me clear some cobwebs away. Dusting the bookshelf. You, you've dust the bookshelf. We're going <laughs> to go back to that very first program because everything is built upon that and you're going to need to access that for your best recovery and when you recover well, you get to turn up here more often and see our beautiful faces. Which is... Pretty much the end game, right? Yeah. 
So the barriers to performance is that you've got dust on your cobwebs or you've got cobwebs, sorry, dust on your shelves or you've got cobwebs that are stopping you from being able to physically find the specific volume that you want. So when you and I step back, we see other people's bookshelves and we go, you've got access to the stress breathing, Mm. but you can't find the other one. So I'm going to dust that away because if we do that, we're a chance to see you run faster because you'll recover better and you can do more of the good training we want. So the barriers to physical performance are bad energy, blocked energy, leaked energy and deficient energy. And bad energy is being in pain or toxined or inflamed or scared or mentally unwell or unable to access the breathing patterns. And the blocked energy is that you're too stiff. And the leaked energy is that you're really, really supple but you've got no control. We would call that stability. And the deficient energy is you're just not fit enough. And... Different people around the world will become experts in one of those. I can make you really, 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 really fit. But I think if you put that program upon somebody and they yep. don't get really, 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 really fit, there's something missing. It's not their fault and it's not your program. It's just that that was the wrong starting point. Yep. And if you unlock one of the other three, you'll find that that same program has a better income because the nervous system says, oh, thank you. I can actually now hear the things that you're telling me. Yeah. I mean, the best summary for, or the best example for that is just take the handbrake off before you drive the car around the racetrack. Hey. And here's the thing. Is you can drive a car around a racetrack with a handbrake on and you'll still get around. Mm. But then you say, can you help me get around there faster and can you build me a bigger engine? And I go, well, I could, but you could just take the handbrake <laughs> off. It's real simple. You'll get yeah. around quicker anyway. And it's somewhat almost instantaneous yeah. relative to you know six weeks of performance training. Absolutely. And you don't get your hands dirty by releasing the handbrake. Yeah, it's easy. Just go see the fizz. And take a deep breath and have some water once in a while. Let's get your handbrake off. All right, we have about six minutes left. Okay. So I have some uh, questions posed by the Virtus family. So you can uh, answer, the, answer these in ha- whatever depth you'd like. Or and then tell them to get stuffed. Tell them to get stuffed. Bailey Schmidt oh, has Schmitt, been chicken really Schmitt. pushing, Chicken Schmidt, has been really pushing for a shout out on each podcast. So a couple of these are his. Okay. Um, and <laughs> I realise that half of them are written on my phone, mm. which is currently recording. So... Uh, they will be not the questions I ask. All right. Did you write them in notes? I put a couple in, but there's a bunch on my uh, in, in text. But anyway, what have you learned working at the Dolphins? Can't you access your text from the MacBook? No, I don't have it connected. Okay. So. What have I learned by learning at the Dolphins? By w- working at the Dolphins, what is it? What is it uh, given you that you maybe haven't had in the past or have had in different ways? Here's one specific thing I learned. I don't know whether this is a male Mornington Peninsula characteristic or whether it's an Australian male and or female characteristic is that people that come to ask me for advice will say I'm really tight here. Now, every single person in the world that they've ever been to see and said I'm really tight here will then get addressed with somebody doing something to to change tightness. Mm. But I stopped and I said, wait a minute. Do you mean tight or do you mean sore? And they pause and they don't quite understand. I say, tight means limited in flexibility or motion. Sore means it's really sensitive or it's tending towards mm. being hurt. Nine times out of ten, they'll ninety-five times out of a hundred, they'll say, "Oh no, I mean sore." Yeah. And because of that difference, you now address it differently than if it was just tight or restricted. Because tight or restricted is let me. Rub it, manipulate it, you're mm. going to stretch it, you're going to change the behaviour of the tissue. But the sensitivity of the system opens up the possibility of 
did you sleep last night? Absolutely not. <laughs> What's your hydration? Horrible. Yep. Okay, that foam rolling will not work. Neither will the treatment that I give you. Mm. So one of the things I have learned is that maybe in Australia we have a phrase called, oh, that's really, really tight. And it's yeah. causing people to not really get improvements because tightness and soreness require different pathways. So mm. I guess I've learned – become more aware of that in – because of the volume of people that I'm seeing in football down here in the peninsula. Yeah. Um, whereas my previous batch of athletes prior to that were Chinese and they had a specific word that was very different between tight and sore. Yeah. And they would use the right word. So they whereas were here, capable of articulating the difference. Yeah. Whereas here, tight and saying it with a grimace, it's, oh, that's really tight. Yeah. Was so there, it was a way of, it was a colloquial way of saying, I'm really sore. Yeah. Whereas the tight word triggers, let's do some massage or that's interesting. Yeah, that's interesting because, like, as a as an athlete and a coach, you kind of you learn the different terms and the different ways to articulate feelings. But I guess it's probably lacking general awareness around what the difference is, and it's important to call a spade a spade. But yeah. if you only know if you don't know the shovels exist, you're probably just going to call it tight. Yeah, we've got a lot of tradies out there and they know what the difference in the shovel, shovel and the spade is, but they... Smaller and flatter but, spade <laughs> compared to a shovel. And square. <laughs> but tighter and sore is not a word that people have known. Yep. And one thing to note is that when you're triaging a whole bunch of footballers in an hour before they go mm. to the team meeting and then go out to training and they've had three days of wallowing in their soreness since the past game before they get to see you, yep. is that you feel the tendency to just prescribe quickly and... When they say I'm really tight here, if you stop, pause, take some extra time to deduce or educe or induce um, <laughs> what specifically they're talking about, that little bit of extra time will direct you in the right direction that saves you a hell bunch more than if you just go, right, everybody who's got tightness, go and hit the foam rollers because that's not the answer that people yep. need and it's not what they're asking for. Cause they just, but they may be saying in a word that's not quite correct, but it's being mistranslated. So that's one thing that I've learned. The other one is that, you know, the dolphins have got a, um, a resting motto, which is that good people make good dolphins and good dolphins do good things. Which we love. We do love that. And it's similar to the Virtus motto. Um, and then it fits in with this other characteristic, which is that the standards you walk past are the standards you accept. And it is a challenging circumstance when you're in professional sport or semi-professional sport is that, we want to set standards for behaviour and we want to set standards for performance success, but on occasions we have to relinquish those standards just because the simple resources that we're dealing with mean we're going to find a shortcut. We're going to have to accept something lower than what we ideally would like to accept because at this point in time we just don't have that choice. You know, we can't – we don't like some of the behaviours that these athletes are undergoing for lots of different reasons that sometimes is not voluntary – and if we draw a line in the sand and say that standard is not acceptable, from my military background where I was not a military serving person, but uh, for seven years I worked in England, Germany, uh, Australia, in different states of Australia, if you were beneath the standard, on occasions that would be disciplinary action and you would be left at home and that could be your dropped from a football game. And that happens across all sports. But on occasions, there are reasons where people will still drop standards and you go, on this occasion, we're going to choose to ignore that. And I guess that's a metaphor for life is that we we have our own rules about what's acceptable and mm. then we break them because for some reason, it's no longer as important as we thought it was once before. 
and yeah. and you know this as well as anybody is that sport is a great lesson in how to live because of the experiences that you have the people that you meet and the challenges that you come up against and whether they be individual pursuits or team pursuits you're effectively learning how to navigate the world that where the world tries to knock you over and um so i guess i've had a lot of reinforcing lessons in the dolphins and some newer ones thanks chicken smitty good shit. that wasn't his question this is questions this one what's been the most challenging and or most interesting injury you've rehabbed helped to rehab who'd you fix Challenging and or most interesting. Yeah. can be multiple injuries. Challenging. One that comes to mind was a female athlete from China who was involved in the sport of wushu. Wushu means um, kung fu. It's like kung fu. But you, in China, they have a combat version, where it's two one-on-one, on one, or they have a dance version where it's one person doing kung fu-style wushu moves in an artistic expression. And... In the artistic version or the dance version of combat of wushu, these individuals would jump and leap in the air, spin around, and then land. And they always only landed on one leg. And so they got a significantly stronger one leg. Mm. And they would land in a pistol squad and bounce out of it again. It's the strongest, the most athletic things I've ever seen. So I had a girl there who uh, ripped cartilage, did an ACL in the lee that she was supposed to be landing on for her future career. And there was no way that this cartilage was ever going to be repaired because it was degenerated all the way to the bone. And all I'm being told was you have to make this person stronger and her job is to leap from great heights and land on this leg in a full knee flexion on one leg (laughs) and bounce out of it. As you do. And I don't want to be the purveyor of improbability, but it was impossible in my eyes that this person was ever going to return to that sport. That was challenging because that's somebody's life Mm. and she didn't choose to be that so somebody else chose her to be that athlete and as a result of not being able to do it, they were just going to discard her. That's really hard hard to see. Um, So that's the most challenging. From an interesting point of view, there was a girl that popped her knee in a World Cup volleyball tournament and the reasons that she popped her knee was related to a single leg landing. I say popped it, she did her ACL and I think there was probably four or five other reasons that her local people had not seen to, which is a shoulder pain, a thorax restriction, a lower back pain, a hip restriction, an ankle restriction, an ankle pain. And if you don't do anything to those other areas, there's one thing that will collapse and that's the knee and that's what happened. And so yeah. she would have been rehabbed afterwards uh, in a hospital system where they would have just done quad strengthening to get her ready. Stuck to the knee, yeah. Uh, and that's challenging. It's interesting because of the things that you can address to avoid that happening and that's what you do in physical preparation and movement prep is try to hit the big buckets that are stuck, mm. try to develop control on the ones that are likely to be sloppy um, and put them all together and integrate them into whole body patterns. And that's interesting and it's challenging. Love yeah. that. In 20 seconds, summarise access bars for us. The and before you'd say that, before you dive in, uh, we will talk dimensions on further podcasts. Okay. So... So I've got 17 seconds now. 12. Probably 12. It's the greatest, <laughs> it's the best head massage you've ever had or it'll change your life. Can confirm. Good. I love that. Get around access bars, by the way. It's phenomenal. Um, we'll get into the, uh, the quick fire 30 in a moment for a separate episode, but fizz quiz, can you bring it back? Yeah. People want the fizz quiz. There's been a couple of people have asked for the fizz quiz. Of course they do. So do you can have I outsource it? So, yeah, you sure you can. I'll license it out to people. 
I'll it's throw not, a bunch of fizzles. It's not the same though. No, it's never the same. It's Maybe the same. I'll just do appearances during VGT VADs. Yes, that would be wonderful. Do you have a que- do you have a quiz question for us while we're here? Yeah. How does NASA organise parties? <laughs> they plan it. <laughs> and on that note, Greg, it's been an absolute fucking pleasure. To everyone else, have a good day. This is from Lucy. Have a good day.